Now you may be seated. <laughs> it uh, feels good to, to stand before you tonight. Um, I forgot to welcome those of you who may be watching online when I started. So if you're watching online, we welcome you to our study this evening. Um, Victor has, has asked me uh, to, to share tonight about marriage. And, uh, and one, one of the, the roles that I've been brought on here at Calvary Restore to, to help with is to, to help, uh, help uh, envision and, and, and dream and, and think and pray about how Calvary Restore can be a support uh, to marriages moving forward. And so my hope, my prayer has been that, that this, this time together would be, would be a launching pad, would be maybe a springboard, um, and that uh, Restore would, would begin to come alongside marriages and, uh, and, and continue to come alongside marriages um, and, um, and help bring support to, to them. Um, as I was preparing tonight, <laughs> Uh, the more I study, the more I realize there's no way, there's no way that, that, that we can be comprehensive. There's no way that we can look at everything Scripture has to say about marriage in one study or in one night. And so uh, I, I hope that, that this at least pricks your heart. I hope that this at least uh, is, is a catalyst for each of us to dig deeper, to go further. Uh, because if, uh, if, if we're trying to get it all into one, to one service or into one study, it's just not going to happen. Um, and, uh, and I was telling Victor earlier at my last church, um, this, this is, here's, here's the, the, the shift for me as I'm, as I'm, uh, um, making the adjustment to Calvary Restore. And, and so, so again, the, the bad news is, um, we're not going to be able to cover everything tonight, right? Um, the good news for me is that I have a lot more time with you guys than I ever had at my last church. Uh, at my last church, we had, we had 25 minutes and, you can't cram it into 25 minutes, you know, people start checking their clocks and their watches. And, and so, but this is a Calvary. So you guys are used to this, right? So we can be here all night. Yeah. And, and you guys are good to go because there's a lot to cover. Um, and, uh, and I was telling Victor, I haven't had to plan for, a four, is it, well, I thought it was 45 minutes. You guys might get 45 minutes tonight. We'll see. But I haven't had to plan for a 45 minute sermon in a while. So we'll see how this goes. Um, uh, but if you've ever struggled in marriage, and if you're married and you would say you haven't struggled in marriage, I might call you a liar, okay? But if you've ever struggled in marriage, or if you have ever, and, uh, or maybe you're not married yet, and, and maybe you've, you've envisioned what your role would look like one day in marriage, or maybe you're coming from a broken marriage, maybe you're carrying scars with you, maybe you're carrying hurts with you, wherever you are tonight, whether you're Currently in, in, in the middle of it, whether you're thinking about it in the future or whether you have um, hurt from the past, um, I, I, I hope that we will learn from the Spirit tonight. I hope God will open up his word and challenge us. And I hope um, if you get nothing else out of tonight, uh, if, you, if the nachos and pie are just you know, filling your stomach and you're ready to take a nap, uh, take this first bit and then you can tune out. Uh, and, and I'll just talk the rest of the time. But the thing that God's laid on my heart the most uh, is that we need to embrace this truth in Scripture that marriage is not about you. That marriage is not about me. And marriage is not about our happiness. Marriage is not about our comfort. And we've been fed this lie, we've been fed this dogma for so long um, that, that marriage is all about finding the, the right person that's going to make you happy. Marriage is all about finding the right person that's going to fill your needs, fulfill your wants, and, 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 and be that soulmate. And I don't think that that's in Scripture. Um, but it's what we've all been led to believe, that we find the person who makes us happy. And if you hear nothing else tonight, hear this. Marriage is not about you or your happiness. Marriage is all about Jesus from the beginning to now. The whole reason we have marriage. Like, you ever, if you ever like sat back and wondered, God, why, why did you create certain things? Like, God, you could, you could have created things in any way you wanted to. You intentionally chose to create marriage. Why? From the beginning, we're going to see it's all about 
Jesus. And so again, that is my, my primary point. Again, if, um, if you remember nothing else, um, it is all about Jesus. And that biblically, marriage and everything about it, even, even those secret, deep, intimate moments, even, the, even intimacy within marriage, is all about Jesus and our calling to make him known. Um, and it's an opportunity for us to draw closer to him and to move us to worship and to glorify him. The world doesn't see it that way, does it? If you were to go out and just ask a bunch of random people, what do you think about marriage? You would get all kinds of answers. And as the world around us continues to experience broken models of marriage, broken hearts and marriage, marital wounds, and those experiences continue to go unhealed, the culture's overall opinion towards marriage has suffered. And unfortunately, the church often takes its notes from the culture instead of the other way around. Unfortunately, the church tends to reflect more the trends and the movements of the world around us instead of being influential and offering the world life and offering the world something better, something with hope, something with value, we tend to follow in the world's footsteps. Uh, so I was trying to get um, some examples of worldly opinions on marriage. You can only imagine what I found on the internet. Um, uh, I tried looking up like, like professional surveys, but those aren't really all that fun. Um, so instead, I went to a, uh, a Reddit forum if you've never been on a Reddit forum, it's just like, like all like the worst of the worst. You really want to like, like, get, like drag yourself through the drags of society. Okay. Um, someone posted on a Reddit forum, on a Reddit uh, message board, asking about, you know, what, what do you guys think about marriage? My girlfriend and I have been dating for a while, and she wants to get married, but I don't. And so it was like an open forum for, for opinions. Um, I underlined some of these. I can't read some of them because it would not be appropriate. But um, these shouldn't surprise us. So just to give us a glimpse into the world's current view of marriage. There's no real benefit in marriage because you can do everything that a married couple can do without being married, apparently. Another user wrote, I don't like marriage because divorce takes over two years here compulsory wait period, when I realize it's time to leave a situation, I want to be able to leave without delay or drama. When I realize it's time to leave a situation, I want to be able to just leave without delay. I want to be able to walk away as soon as I want to. I was married once, never want to do it again. No point in most cases. It won't prove you're committed and just makes the end more difficult when it comes very optimistic. Marriage turns free will into obligation and my relationship into a chore and therefore something to avoid. If you, for whatever reason, don't like, love, or want that person anymore, there's way too much bureaucracy to, I guess, to separate or to divorce. So it's like as soon as you don't like, love, or want that person anymore, you should be able to just walk away. I think it's an outdated concept, at least, um, at least for love. And then um, another user says, but then again, once you marry, you are legally tied together, and that doesn't sit well with me. As I said, I don't ever trust anyone, even if I like them, because they can change from many factors, and if my spouse changes to the bad side, whatever that is, if my spouse changes to the bad side, then I'm not the kind to endure and stay. I will be out, and for that, again, divorce and legal matters will be a real pain. So I prefer not to deal with that and just not marry. And I can go on and on and on. Um, that ought to break our hearts, you know? Um, some of it's over the top, you know, uh, and some of it we can sit back and like kind of maybe chuckle, but you know, as I'm reading through this, I'm like, man, it ought to break our hearts, church, okay? Because what does God say about marriage? What is the intent of marriage? I want to look at our, our, our main passage this morning is going to be in Ephesians 5, but there are three or four other passages I want to look at first that, that will inform how we handle 
this Ephesians 5 passage. So first, um, what does God say about marriage in Hebrews 13, 4? Hebrews 13, 4 says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed or the marriage bed undefiled or the marriage bed pure. Marriage is honorable among all. Some translations say marriage should be honored by all. So God is saying, not just by the church, not just by believers, I want the whole world to be able to, I want, I want all, I want everyone to be able to look at marriage and to, and, to, and to think that is something honorable, that is something of value, that is something that, that even if, if, if everything else doesn't make sense, I see the value in marriage. Can we say that that's true today after, and this is just a glimpse of what people, you know, is, is marriage held in honor by all today or even a fraction? Absolutely not. And yet we know that from Scripture that, 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 that is God's heart, that even an unbeliever should be able to look at marriage and not only see that it has value, but see an example of Christ's love exemplified and lived out. It is the will of God that your marriage bear witness to the reality of Jesus. Our marriages should bear witness to the reality of of Jesus to a lost and dying world, to a world that has no hope, to a world that all they see around them is brokenness, all they see around them is hurt, all they see around them is betrayal, and then they look to the church and they look to, to scripture that, that's supposed to hold up marriage and what example are we showing them? Are we showing the world Jesus through our marriages? Um, clearly, we're struggling with that. Um, and this is why broken marriages are becoming more and more common, even among believers. And I think part of this, I think a big part of this is because the enemy has been at work, right? From, from the very first marriage that ever was in the book of Genesis to now, the enemy has been at work tearing down this model. And one of the most effective things he does to tear it down is he convinces us that marriage is about us. Um, think about every portrayal of romance and relationship and marriage that you see in movies, that you hear in, this, in songs, that we just see in culture around us. And, and over and over again, the message is reinforced. Marriage is about you. Marriage is about making sure that your needs are filled, that you are happy and taken care of. Um, and so our cultural vocabulary is filled with, with phrases like, we just had in, incompatible differences. We're just incompatible. We're all incompatible. Like, right? If, if you've been around humans long enough, you know we're all incompatible. There's nothing compatible about us. Or we just fell out of love. That, like, to, to say, well, we fell in love, uh, it sounds like an accident, right? It sounds like, well, we can't help it. It just happened. Well, if you ascribe to that way of thinking then you have an easy out to say, if, we can, if you can fall in love, it's just as easily to fall out of love. And once I've fallen out of love, there's nothing I can do about it. It just is what it is, right? Um, or uh, this, is, uh, this is one I've heard a lot. Uh, he or she is not the same person I married. Times have changed them. They're different. They're not the same person I married. We all change. The, you better hope they're not, they're not the same person you married. That would not be healthy. Right, that would not be good if they're the same. And um, so we, we we have all these 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 cultural phrases and, and and things that we use to justify walking away. It's even in our our music now. I'm not, I'm not old enough to remember the, when the song actually came out. So uh, so I'm I'm gonna de-age myself here. But uh, but I, I I am old enough to remember hearing it growing up. Um, there's a song with the lyrics. Um, it's sad to belong to someone else. Do you guys know this song? It's sad to belong to someone else. What's the rest of it? When the... You guys don't know this. It came out in the 70s. Okay, fine, I'll tell you. Uh, the, the lyric goes, it's sad to belong to someone else when the right one comes along. Ah, oh, now you know. See, you guys knew it already. You just didn't want to sing it. Um, and it's just a song, and we get that. But, but, but that, that song, other songs like it, 
It's sad to belong to someone else when the right one comes along. And when you go through the lyrics of the verses and he's talking about, I'm waking up next to one person, but I wish it was you, okay? And this is romance. This is what we pass off as romance in our culture, that, um, that this idea of, oh, if it's all about me, then I could miss out on the right person. If romance and love and marriage is all about me and my needs, that means that, that there's a chance that I married the wrong person, and so when the right one comes, I won't be ready. Okay, is that, is that what the Bible says about marriage? And so, you know, I'm making a big deal here. I'm making a big case for, for, for why the biblical definition of marriage is so important today, uh, because the enemy is hard at work tearing it down. And marriage was always intended to be one of the, the, the greatest evangelistic tools of the church, of God's people. And now it has lost so much of its power. It's lost so much of its effectiveness because we have bought into the world's lie that marriage is about us. That intimacy is about us. It's about my needs. And it's always meant to be about Jesus. And, and I, I gotta take a step back here also because I understand that many of us, in fact, statistically speaking, probably all of us have in some way been legitimately deeply impacted by a broken marriage. Whether it's our own, whether it's that of parents, but someone in our family, a friend, all of us probably in some way have been deeply legitimately impacted by a broken marriage. And it's impossible to talk about biblical marriage without also bringing up all these questions, like, well, what about this situation? What about that scenario? What, you know, would God really want me to stay in this kind of relationship um, if it's not safe? And what about, and we have all these what ifs. And, um, and time would fail us to get into all of those tonight. It's, it's just not possible. Um, and so if, if that's where you are, if, 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 the, if there's a wound, if there's a struggle, if there's a hurt, and you're, and, and, and you're thinking, man, I, I hear what the Bible says, and I know, I, know, I know what God's calling me to, but man, this is just a deep-rooted hurt, and I, I can't get my head and my heart around why God would ask me to do this. My word to you tonight would simply be that Jesus sees you, okay? Jesus sees you. He sees your heart. And a lot of the things that we're going to be looking at deal with tearing down our selfishness and pride, Okay? But Jesus also says that he's near to the brokenhearted. Jesus also says um, that he comforts those who mourn, okay? And so, like I said, it's, it's gonna be impossible to, to be comprehensive about everything, every question that we could ask about marriage tonight. Um, and, and, and if that's where you're at, then I'd be happy to talk to you afterward or, or pray with someone, okay? Um, but uh, I, we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that sometimes when the church talks about marriage and all these high and lofty ideals, people slip through the cracks. And um, I don't want that to happen tonight. So um, a few thoughts from scripture before we dive into Ephesians 5. And so these are three thoughts from scripture that I want us to keep on the forefront of our thoughts. And as we read through Ephesians 5, after every statement or command um, that we see, I want you to repeat these things in your mind. First of all, um, as we've already seen from Hebrews 13, um, Hebrews 13, 4, we can pull that up again. Marriage is, um, marriage is meant to be honorable. And again, my scripture says, uh, the, and the marriage bed undefiled, or some, some might say the marriage bed kept pure. Purity is often spoken of in scripture in conjunction with that which is holy. And that which is holy is set apart exclusively for the glory and the pleasure and the purpose of God, right? So if marriage is holy and honorable, again, I'm, I'm sort of restating the main point here. Um, it's not about us. It is exclusively set apart for God's glory and God's pleasure, Okay. Um, so as we read through Ephesians 5, after each command, I want you to repeat to yourself, this command is for the testimony of God's glory, not for my personal happiness. This, this thing that God's asking me to do is for the testimony of God's glory, not for my personal happiness, okay? Um, 
second passage. As we read through Ephesians, we're going to see that the biblical idea of marriage requires great sacrifice on both the husband and the wife's part. And we can take comfort as we read through that in remembering the words of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. And this is, you know, all these scriptures are going to be ones you guys have heard before. Um, But I want you to remember the, the promise, the words of Romans 12. Um, verses 1 through 2, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, or um, some translations say your reasonable act of worship, right? And so as we read through Ephesians 5, I want you to remember that no sacrifice on your part is going to go unnoticed that every sacrifice we make in the pursuit of holiness, in the pursuit of Christ-likeness, every sacrifice we make, God receives as true and proper worship. And so every time, again, that we read another command in Ephesians 5, repeat to yourself, this is my true and reasonable act of worship. Right. Um, and then finally, we have a double header here. Uh, um, in Hebrews 4.15, says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, or some translations say submissive, point of death, even the death on the cross. So the third thing I want us to keep in mind as we go through Ephesians 5 is that God is not gonna call on us to make any sacrifice that Jesus hasn't made first. To every temptation. This is the promise of scripture. And we have to decide. We have to decide how, how literal we believe God is being here. Do you really believe that every single way you are tempted, Jesus knows what that feels like? And that he lived that life without sin by the power of the spirit and to the glory of God. And so there will be no temptation, no struggle, no frustration no point you can reach where you throw your hands up and say, I'm done. There's no temptation that has overtaken us that Jesus has not also experienced. No sacrifice you will ever make in the pursuit of holiness will surpass what Jesus has endured. And you will not reach an extent of reaching out in love towards your spouse that will ever surpass the extent that Jesus has reached for you. And so as we go through this passage, the third thing I want us to remind ourselves is that Jesus did it first. Everything that God asks us to do in marriage, Jesus did it first. Okay, so number one, it's for the testimony of God's glory, not my personal happiness. Number two, this is true worship that God receives. Sacrifice is true worship that God receives. And number three, Jesus did it first, all right? Keep those biblical principles in mind as we go through Ephesians 5. So um, let's go ahead and turn to our main passage in Ephesians. I'm going to start in, I'm actually going to back up a little bit. I'm going to start in Ephesians, at the end of Ephesians 4. I'm going to read Ephesians 4.32 through um, the first two verses of chapter 5. Paul writes, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Be imitators of God. Don't imitate the world. Don't imitate what we hear in music, what we see in movies. Be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering 
and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So first of all, let's remember the context of this super controversial Ephesians 5 passage that we all love to read about. The context here is Paul has built this argument throughout the book of, of, of Ephesians of what it means to be in the Spirit, what it means to be a new person in Christ. And now as he's winding down this letter, he's saying, now here's what that looks like. Here's how that's lived out. And it's important that as you as, as, as we read these things, because it's so easy for us as Christians to get into this legalistic mindset. We're like, okay, here are the do's and the don'ts. Here's what I have to do to be a good Christian. Here's what I'm obligated to do. If I don't do it, I'm gonna feel guilty. If I don't do it, God might punish me. If I don't do it, you know, I'm afraid of what might happen, okay? And so Paul is tearing down those motivations. So as we read this passage in Ephesians 5, he's saying, your motivation should not be fear. Your motivation should not be guilt. Your motivation should not be obligation. You should never, if, if someone ever asks you, why do you live this way? Why do you, you know, submit to your husband? Why do you sacrifice for your wife? Your answer should never be because the Bible tells me to and I have to, okay? Your answer should be because Jesus did it and I want to be like Jesus. That's what Paul wrote here, to be imitators of God. Just as Jesus did this, so our motivation in these things, and this this will, this will cover over a multitude of, of offenses if we can get our hearts around this truth. That our motivation for this is to be like Jesus, right? Um, so the context here, again, Paul's saying, here's what you're gonna do, but do it. Um, again, the, at the end of chapter four, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Be imitators of God as dear children, Walk in love as Christ also has loved. Again, he's pointing us back to Jesus. Do these things because Jesus did them first. Okay, I have a quote here um, that kind of summarizes this. It's from, from John Piper, and I know John Piper isn't, uh, you know, some people disagree with, with a lot of things he's written. Whatever your feelings about John Piper, um, I feel like he's right on with this quote. He says, let the measure of God's grace to you in the cross of Christ be the measure of your grace to your spouse. Let the measure of God's grace to you in the cross of Christ be the measure of your grace to you. The measure that God has extended grace to you through the death, sacrifice, and resurrection of Jesus, let that be the measure of your grace to your spouse. Jesus forgave first. Jesus loved first. Jesus sacrificed first. And then he did all these things in far more abundance and to far greater measure than any of us will ever have to do for one another. So, um, Ephesians 5, uh, 21. Some Bibles have verse 21 at the end of the previous verse. Some of it have it at the beginning of the following verse doesn't really matter uh, for my point of which one it is. But in Ephesians 5.21, it says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So before Paul gets into the roles of marriage, he says, you are to submit to one another. Before he calls on wives to submit or husbands to sacrifice, he calls on believers all over, all believers, regardless of your marital role, to submit to each other, submit to one another in love, um, and uh, um, uh, so it's believer and believer mutually and willingly submitting to each other. Uh, this isn't meant to, to deconstruct the idea of authority. It's not meant to undermine the, the principles of leadership, but to reinforce what Jesus did. Um, when Jesus knelt down on one knee, Oh, maybe one knee. Maybe it was two knees. We're not really sure. But Jesus knelt down and, um, and, and took upon himself the position of a servant um, and washed his disciples' feet. That was the role that someone who was lesser should have done. That was the role that someone who was in a submissive position should have done. Jesus did it. Was there any doubt in that room amongst his followers who their leader still was? Is there any doubt in our hearts when we read that story who their leader still was and is? So submission is not 
abdicating leadership. It's humbling ourselves. It's following the example of Jesus. And Paul says before anything else, before we get into these marital roles, believers in general start with humility and servanthood, okay? And then verse 22, verses 22 through 24, Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, I'm sure I don't have to point out the, the difficulty and the controversy that this passage tends to provoke in us humans. Um, I don't think I've ever been in a study where this has been the primary focus, where there hasn't been some kind of fiery discussion, um, plenty of questions asked, uh, because the very idea of submission is not only foreign to us, but in our 21st century Western mindsets, it's offensive, right? The very idea of submission is offensive. We live in a culture where for years, we have been told that there is no higher virtue than personal freedom. There is no higher virtue than personal autonomy. And so the idea of me giving that up, the idea of me willing, willingly submitting myself to someone else's authority is seen as offensive and it's seen as weakness. Submission is weakness and personal independence is seen as strength. And so to give in and surrender to someone else, people would say, well, you're, 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 you're suppressing who you really are. You're, you're suppressing your, 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 your inner desires, and that's not good. You, you, you shouldn't suppress yourself. You shouldn't deny yourself your rights and your privileges. Those are owed to you from birth, and so submission is seen as foolishness. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why, when, when we hear these words where Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, it's, it's offensive, it rubs us the wrong way, uh, we don't like it. We look for all, all kinds of explanations. Uh, and when scripture comes along and lifts submission up as a virtue and elevates it as an act of wisdom, love, and obedience, um, then oftentimes people will question the very foundation of truth upon which it is based. It doesn't help that so many, um, so many ill-intentioned individuals in the past have used this passage to do horrible things. There have been so many people in the past who have used this passage to, to, uh, to manipulate, to force, to use, to, to abuse, to exploit their wives in ways Jesus never intended. So that doesn't help matters. Again, Satan is so good at taking good things that Jesus gifts, that, that God gifts us with and to pervert them into something that we find offensive. Um, and so the enemy has taken one of the greatest strengths in the Christian walk, and he's twisted it into something vile and offensive. And I say strength intentionally, because as believers, we know where our true strength comes from, right? Right? Um, does our true strength come from all the knowledge that we accumulate throughout our life? Does our true strength come from um, uh, filling our head with, with biblical facts? Does our strength come from uh, which church we're, uh, we are associated with, what family we grew up with, where does our true strength come from? From submission. We find strength in submission to the Holy Spirit, right? Paul says, in my weakness, Christ's strength is made perfect. And if it were not for my weakness, I would never know the full extent and power of God's strength in me, Right? And so scripturally speaking for the believer, submission is a source of tremendous strength. Um, the Bible says Jesus submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. Um, did Jesus display weakness or strength when he hung up there for our sins? Did he display weakness or strength when, as I said before, he kneels down and serves his disciples. As a church of Jesus, our true strength is not in making our own decisions or deciding for ourselves what is best, but we are at our strongest when we voluntarily give in to the will of Jesus. And so I believe part of what Paul is saying is in the same way 
The church finds its strength and its purpose in submission to Jesus. So Paul says, wives, you are living out your creational intent, your creational purpose, and the strength that God's given you, wives, you live that out in biblical submission to your husband. Uh, Genesis tells us that Eve was created as, um, as a helper for Adam, right? Um, not his inferior, not someone who was less than. Uh, Eve was created as a helper to Adam, and we think often that, that means that she was created to serve him, but in truth, what we see in Genesis is that Adam could not be who God created him to be without Eve, Right? The Bible doesn't say that in so many words, but when God looks upon Adam and sees that he's alone, what does God say? This isn't good. This is not good. This is not my intent. This is not who I've made him to be. I need to bring someone along suitable to him, a companion, someone who will help him, not someone uh, who's gonna be you know, a slave, not someone who's gonna be less than him, uh, but someone who will complete him. And I think it's, it's beautifully poetic in some ways that, that God takes Eve from a part of Adam and brings her back to him so that only together can they be whole, only in that unity can they be who God has called them to be. So Adam cannot be who God creates him to be without Eve's help. It was not good for him to be alone. So as wives, your submission to your husband does not mean inferiority, does not mean being dominated by his whims, it means that you sacrifice so that he can be who God's created him to be. It means that you sacrifice who, who you could be. You, you sacrifice all the things that you could do so that your husband can continue to grow and be who God has called him to be. And just a bit of personal testimony to this. Because um, in my own marriage, we've been married almost 17 years. Um, and um, I seldom feel more empowered than I do when I know that Maria is in my corner. And um, through Maria embracing the truth of biblical submission to me, um, I have learned so much more of what it means to be a leader. I've learned so much more about what it means to be a man of God because she has chosen to, um, to embrace this call to biblical submission. Again, this is about God's glory, not our happiness. Um, this is true and reasonable worship. And Jesus did it first, right? Jesus submitted himself to the cross. Um, and so if he can do that, um, then he's calling us to do this. He's calling wives to do this, to find your true strength, your created purpose, your created intent in biblical submission. All right, um, verse 25. How am I doing in time? Um, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, he who loves himself, love, I'm sorry, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Um, men, Paul writes in such a way that there can be no mistaking or escaping the level of sacrifice God is calling husbands to make. Paul could have said, Paul could have just said, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and left it at that. And that in itself would have been this tremendous calling, this high and holy calling, right? But Paul doesn't just leave it there. He goes on to break this down even further and to explain more and more what that means. And I think the reason why he do, or one of the reasons why he does that is because so often we, we hear that phrase, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we think, okay, Jesus died for the church and so as long as, I'm, as long as I love my wife enough to be willing to die for her, then that's what God's calling me to do, right? And, um, and that's part of it, uh, but that's not where Paul leaves it because um, Jesus didn't just die for us, right? 
Jesus didn't just come just to die on the cross for us. Every moment he spent on this earth, he spent preparing his people for the coming of God's kingdom. With, with every breath, with every act, with everything he was doing, he was pursuing the will of the Father and, and, and preparing his people for the coming of God's kingdom. So over and over again, he says, you know, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, Jesus didn't just die sacrificially for the church. He lived sacrificially for the church. He took upon himself the frailty of human flesh. He took upon himself a weak and broken body. He reaches down into the filthiest, dirtiest moments of our lives that we surround ourselves with. He lifts us up out of that that mire and he clothes us with ongoing love and acceptance. Clothes us with ongoing love and acceptance and forgiveness. Jesus doesn't just die for us. And so Paul says, husbands, love your wives this way. Wow. If you think for a moment that that is easy, or that that is simple. Okay, we severely underestimate what Jesus has done for us. Okay, he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he goes on to say, um, husband, in verse 28, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And this is, this, there's an important principle here, okay? Because he's not saying, um, love your wife the way you would want her to love you, right? This isn't like the golden rule. Um, it's not like some kind of like selfish motivation. Um, when he says, love your wife as your own body, he's saying, love your wife because she is your own body. And this is just one of these, these, these profound spiritual mysteries where God sees, uh, married into, uh, sees a married couple as one, as one flesh, one body. And so when Paul says, love your wife as your own body, um, uh, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. He's saying, because she she is a part of you. Your wife, in God's eyes, it's not just something on paper. It's not just words that we say. She is very literally, in God's eyes, a part of you. And so when you love your wife, you are loving yourself, and when you deny your wife affirmation or affection or attention or whatever it is, you are denying yourself something. That's, that's, maybe it's just me, I don't know, uh, but, but guys, we, we can do that, right? Like, like when we get mad, you know, we kind of shut down, and, uh, and, 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 you know, we think, well, I'm, I'm going to punish, or maybe it's the other way around, some, I don't know, everyone's different. Whatever your relationship dynamic is, sometimes we feel like when, when we deny our spouse something because we're angry or hurt, okay, well, I'm going to show them, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I don't say something nice to them. I'm going to make sure I don't give them a hug, good night, or, or I'm just going to say, you know, whatever it is, we feel like when, when we deny them that we're, we're enacting justice. We, we're denying ourselves the joy of marriage. We're denying ourselves the gift that God has given us when, when we act so foolishly. So Paul is saying, um, you know, no one, no one does that. No one denies their own selves. And in God's eyes, you and your wife are one. Um, treat her as one with you. What happens to her affects you. And there's a deep spiritual truth to that because in the New Testament, when Paul talks about believers, he doesn't use the, 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 the word Christian, right? When Paul talks about believers, he says those who are in Christ. And when Jesus prays for believers um, the night before he's crucified and he's praying and he says, Lord, I pray that they would be one just as you and I are one. I pray they would be one with me. There's a picture there just, just as husbands and wives are one in God's eyes, so we are one with Jesus. And when we are in Christ, what, what's true about him by the grace of God becomes true about us. And that's the picture that God's trying to present to the world through marriage. So when Paul says, love your wives as your own bodies, 
He's saying she's a part of you. She's one with you. Verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says, this is a great mystery. I love the NIV version. It says, this, this is a profound mystery, right? And we think about mystery. We think about things that are unknown or things that I have to investigate. And um, scripturally speaking, in ancient Greek, a mystery wasn't something um, that was unknowable. It was a hidden spiritual truth. So God is, so Paul is saying that there is profound mystery here. There is this hidden gem of spiritual truth that God has hidden within the structure of marriage and he wants to be revealed to the world around us. That he wants for that marriage model to reveal his love for the world around us. And so Paul says again, the great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. I'm going through all these things talking about husbands and wives, but I'm really talking about Jesus and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's not about us. It is about Jesus. And it's interesting, um, when Jesus was questioned about, uh, about marriage, and it's happened a few times, uh, but there's one time in Matthew 19 uh, where he is questioned about divorce. And when he, he raises the standard, right? He says, this is what Moses said. And God gave you that law because he knew that your hearts were hard. And he knew that if he left it, if, if he was going to leave it to, to, to your own devices, then, 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 then you would rob people of their humanity. You would rob them of their dignity. So he created a system because your hearts were hard that would force you to maintain the other person's dignity. But that's not what God wants from the beginning, right? And so he raises the standard to say, um, on, unless there is um, infidelity, Anyone who remarries causes you know, the wife to become an adulteress. How do the disciples respond to that? Are they like, that sounds good. Super easy. No. The disciples are like, well, then it's better not to get married. <laughs> Jesus, if, it, if it's that big of a deal, if it's, if it's so important, you, you mean we can't just walk away when it gets hard? You mean... Because remember, Jesus was, was asked by the Pharisees, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason? You know, and they're asking him to kind of pick sides. Um, and then Jesus raises the standard. And when the disciples hear it, I, I think their reaction is appropriate. I think their response when understanding God's view of marriage and divorce is appropriate. Because they say, well, then it's better not to get married. If it's, if it's that important to God that we can't just walk away from it whenever it gets hard, um, why even bother getting married? Jesus does not go out of his way to soften the blow. It's not like he says, well, I wasn't being serious, or well, it's not really like that. Um, in Matthew 19, I didn't have this one bookmarked, but I gotta find it now. In Matthew 19, verse eight, he says, um, said that Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. He says, not everyone can, can accept it. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't, doesn't take it back. He says, yeah, it's hard. This is tough. And maybe marriage isn't for you. Um, if, if, if it's, you know, if you can't handle it, don't do it. But he says, um, only those to whom it has been given. And so we have to remember that God has given us marriage. It is a gift. Um, and God doesn't give us anything bad. Our Father gives good gifts. And God doesn't give us anything challenging without also promising to empower us through it, right? Um, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful who will provide a way out from under it, right? And so God has given us marriage, and, and by the power of the Spirit and, and, and in the view of his anointing and grace, 
he can empower us to live out this biblical model um, of the love of Jesus. Um, and that's what the world needs. The world sees enough brokenness around it. The world sees enough betrayal. The world sees enough people just giving up. Um, what do they see when they look to the church? What do they see when they look to the bride of Christ who is supposed to reflect our Lord and Savior in everything that we do? And so um, in studying this message, I felt, <laughs> I felt targeted by, by God. I felt challenged. I felt convicted. Um, uh, and I prayed that, uh, that, this, that we would carry this with us into not just our marriages, but as we, um, as we encounter others, we would encourage them, we would challenge them, um, and that the testimony of the love of Jesus would continue to be expressed through our marriages and that we would be able to offer him profound and sacrificial worship in the process. Let's pray. Father, what, what, a, what a high calling you have um, woven into the structure of marriage. Lord, that we should not take lightly, that we should not depend on our emotion or on um, our feelings or on the, the flippant opinions of the world around us. Um, Father, I pray, I pray over every marriage represented in this room, over every, every marriage represented in this church and, and, and in your people, Lord, that you would, you would continue a healing work, you would continue a redemptive work, a restorative work, Father, that the, the testimony of the love of Jesus would not be lost because of how we have mishandled this gift of marriage. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would, we, would, uh, we would seek you in this daily, or that we would seek you, seek your strength and your anointing in the submission and in the sacrifice and in the leadership and in all these things. Father, I pray we would never try and do these things on our own strength, but that only in the power of your spirit uh, and by the grace of your love and the sacrifice of Jesus uh, would you be glorified, Father. We thank you for this time again. Uh, and we pray you would use it to make us more like, like Christ. Amen.